Y'all ever feel like the Bible ought to come with a warning label? <laughs> this, this text today, would y'all want to preach on it? Well, I didn't want to preach on it either. Uh, Gemma said that she and Elisa uh, talked about it at home and said, uh, just, Elisa said, just don't look at me while you're reading it. I, <laughs> <laughs> this one is, as they say, a hard saying. This one is one of those texts that we have to remind ourselves that we're Christians before we delve into them and know that we're going to have to wrestle it for a blessing if a blessing's going to be had. And that's what I've done on your behalf this week. I have wrestled this one, and I found a blessing, and I hope that I'll be able to share it to you and that you'll feel blessed when we're done. So don't be a scared. Uh, we're not going to do quite what it sounds like we're going to do uh, as we start. Our gospel lesson for today is the third section that we have heard over the last three weeks of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Now, it's hard to keep up, I know, from week to week. I'm the only one among us who thinks about these things from one week to the next, and I know that. I'm clear about my role. No, Reverend Kristen, you just, you think these people think about the text in between? I think they do too. But it's hard to keep up with where we've been uh, all the time. So I want to remind you that two weeks ago we heard the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, and that was all those comforting words, what we know as the Beatitudes. Uh, remember, Jesus is telling us that the reign of God is at hand, and that we clearly have a role in bringing the reign of God into becoming manifest, making it real in the world, right? So he begins his Sermon on the Mount with comforting words to, well, groups of people that really represent all of us at one time or another. Those who mourn. Those who try to let their actions speak louder than words. That's the way I like to think of the meek. Uh, those who try to make peace, those who try to do the right thing, and certainly those who have been persecuted. For all of those folks, Jesus says, heaven will be ours if we help to make heaven real while we're here. Jesus told the disciples and other followers that he knew the law had been used to oppress them that there were religious and political leaders whose use of the law for their own devices had caused the people not to trust the law anymore. He told his listeners that the proper response to the legalism and oppression of the lawyers and religious leaders was to be transgressive. Transgressive. To break the rules in positive ways to make the wisdom and truth and compassion that are at the heart of the law so much a part of their lives that their faith would be irresistible to the people around them. Could it be, in part, that we have been seeing that in Egypt in recent days? People so living out the truth, holding the truth before themselves and each other so brightly, that it's irresistible. We can only pray that the outcome will reflect that kind of motivation. Jesus taught that though we often feel powerless to change the systems we live in, we can offer a glimpse of what real justice and righteousness look like until they become reality. In last week's gospel lesson, Jesus got a little silly 
He's, he's moving on through the Sermon on the Mount. And he gets a little silly. He said that if we want to see heaven on earth, the reign of God, our righteousness must exceed that of the most pious people in town. Now, friends, he's making a joke on the way to making a serious point. He's doing what my daddy used to do with me when I was a little boy and people were picking on me at school. He said, Harry, kill him with kindness. You familiar with that phrase? Kill him with kindness. He meant for me to be so loving and compassionate and gracious in response to the hurtful things that were said or done to me that the bullies might be called to act from a better place within themselves or at least to be shown to be what they were, not powerful, but in fact pitiful. What Daddy did not mean was for me to actually go and kill those people. Do you get that? That's the sort of conversational twist that Jesus throws into his sermon there and now in this part of the text. And we miss that if we're not careful, if we just hear the verses that we've heard today with no context of where we're coming from with them. So that's what he's doing. At this point in the sermon, Jesus' disciples would be smirking a little. They'd be cutting their eyes at each other to see if the other folks in the crowd were getting the joke. That's what's happening here. Jesus is being preposterous in order to get his point across. Murder, he says... I'm telling you, even being angry will get you taken to court in the reign of God. Calling someone a fool will get you sent to hell. Now, what he really says, it's badly translated in this version of the Bible. What he really says is it'll get you sent to Gehenna. You know what Gehenna was or where it was? Gehenna, as Reverend Michael pointed out to me as we were thinking about the text together this week, was the garbage dump outside of Jerusalem. It was the garbage dump. And there they kept a fire burning all the time, burning fires of Gehenna. You've heard these phrases before, right? They kept a fire burning all the time for two reasons. One was to dispose of all of the trash, and the other was to keep down the stench. Now, people at Resurrection Church understand this phenomenon. What Jesus is saying is, if you, all, if you all aren't nice to each other, I'm going to send you across the street to the sanitary uh, plant. <laughs> right? That's what he said. Jesus is trying to get his followers to realize that their oppressors are distracting them. Trying to get them to think about the unthinkable like murder when they can be doing something about what can actually be done. Not many of them ever seriously think about killing anybody, but the cancer of everyday anger can so eat up a soul as to make life here on earth a living hell, can it not? And can't it make murder seem possible? sometimes even to a spirit like yours that's why we don't focus 
constantly on spiteful language. Uh, we, don't, we don't think always on the negative. We don't say everything that we have first come to mind. Reverend Kristen raises chickens. But <laughs> she says she feeds chickens. <laughs> she also tells me not to expect any eggs right now because it's wintertime and they don't lay eggs in the wintertime. I did not know that. They're, they're, when they're cold, they don't lay eggs. I see. <laughs> cold as I've been lately, I felt like laying some things, but that's a. Uh, <laughs> what Jesus is talking about here is a chicken. I was just trying to get to this point. Is a chicken and egg. <laughs> What Jesus is talking about is a chicken and egg kind of question. Which came first, the chicken or the egg, right? Which came first, the murder or the angry heart and the spiteful language? I think Jesus would say it doesn't matter because both of them separate us from God and from each other. And the reign of God that is coming and is even here today is all about bringing us together not about separation. When you're accused of something you didn't do, Jesus says, do all in your power to reconcile with your accuser and try to stay out of court. You can never trust these Roman courts, Jesus says. They might lock you up and throw away the key. The people to whom Jesus spoke directly lived in a system that served the interests of the powerful and provided very little protection for the vulnerable. Some of you have spent time in court, and you know that things have not changed a great deal in many ways from when Jesus lived until this day. Jesus is not saying we should become doormats for our neighbors to walk on and simply give in and admit to everything that we're accused of. Jesus is certainly not saying we shouldn't try to get justice from the courts especially from those who've been the victims of abuse or greed or violence. Jesus is saying that the courts of this world are limited in their capacity to provide justice. And so we must do all we can to resolve our differences with open hearts that seek understanding and reconciliation. When we nurse our pride and insist on making sure everybody knows that we are right and everybody else is wrong or somebody else is wrong, we can in fact create prisons of our own making. We can install the bars on our own prison. What a shame, Jesus says, with the kingdom so close, with the reign of God so close at hand. Then, Jesus talks about sex and marriage. And for that, I'm going to need a drink of water. <laughs> Jesus talks about sex and marriage in a sermon. If Jesus had been exaggerating in order to make a point before, we can forgive him for exaggerating now as he talks about sex, lust, and commitment. 
We exaggerate when we talk about sex all the time. <laughs> if Jesus gets even more graphic and outlandish in his language as he moves to talk of lust and commitment, it may be because sex is one of the most powerful forces among us. Sex is that singular form of intimacy in which we offer ourselves at our most vulnerable to each other. When we have good, fun, healthy sex, we offer ourselves in strength or in softness to another person in order to give and receive exquisite pleasure. We give something of ourselves away that we don't get back. And we receive something that is uniquely a gift from that other person in that moment. It is beautiful, powerful stuff. And I am so glad that I am part of Resurrection Church where we are in every way that we know how to be sex positive. It took us a long time to get here. Now, in Jesus' day, the idea of good, fun, healthy sex was almost unspeakable. It's not that people weren't having it. They were. Certainly, they were having sex, and some of it was good, fun, and pleasurable, and, and community-oriented. But what they were not doing was talking about it in public. And Jesus talks about it in public. What they were doing was a system where men owned the women that they married. And marriages were contracts that were primarily about property rights. And men had all the rights. In a time when the average life expectancy was not more than about 40 years of age, marriage was about survival and procreation. It didn't have much at all to do about love. What sounds to us like pretty conservative pronouncements from Jesus were actually pretty radical for the time that he was speaking. He's telling men not to treat their wives like expendable commodities, but to treat them like human beings. He's introducing a love ethic into the concept of marriage. And it's a radical, new, and world-changing concept. The very idea, in the reign of God, men won't divorce their wives willy-nilly and leave them to lead lives on the street not in the reign of God do you remember back in Advent when we talked about Joseph and Mary and how Joseph must surely have fallen in love with Mary if he was able to find it in his heart not to be disrespectful of her when he found out that she was pregnant before they'd actually gone through the ceremony it's pure speculation on my part but I want to believe I want to believe that that love persisted 
And that Jesus is able here to introduce a love ethic into his disciples' concept of marriage because he had grown up in a house where love reigned and made that house a little bit of heaven on earth. I want to believe it. As many of you have heard me share, I know from personal experience that love is sometimes not enough to keep couples together. And indeed, health and truth and community require some couples to separate. But even when our relationships change, they change for the better when we keep love as the primary motivator and work through the difficult nuances with love as our guide. It's hard, it's gritty, but it is real and relevant enough to be true and to be important on your faith journey. And Jesus said we should tell the truth in love. This afternoon, many of us will be making a witness to the power of love in marriage. The Texas Big Gay Wedding event is designed to show our neighbors that love and commitment are the foundations of same-gender loving relationships. Our marriages, whether legal or sacramental, deserve the same respect as any others when our commitment is to care for each other in good times and bad. And even when somebody cuter comes along. <laughs> Friends, we don't need a fancy argument in order to win over the hearts and minds of our neighbors. Already, two-thirds of voters here in Texas and around the country believe that we should have some form of relationship recognition under the law. We're just now talking about whether or not to call it marriage. We're winning this fight because we have been telling the truth in love. We've been letting our lives simply show that we are committed to each other, that we care for each other in good times and bad, and that we're serious about those relationships. That's what our straight neighbors have needed to see, and we have shown them, and we continue to show them that, and we will this afternoon. We don't have to trick them. As Jesus goes on to tell the disciples in the last sentences of today's lesson, our statements need only to be truthful and plain. In the reign of God, which we are helping to create, love will always be the theme, and a truthful promise will be the only tie we need to bind. They will know we are married in the same way they know we are Christians. Can you say it with me? By our love. Amen. Amen. Amen.